I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man and presumably that would be the dignity of all humans hey it's the deal of the century no it's not tv game show hype though its chief promoter has certainly excelled at reality tv with its hooks and gimmicks it's what president donald trump and israeli prime minister netanyahu are trumpeting as a peace plan for the turbulent middle east Trump boasts that where others have tried and bitterly failed, he insists he has done it, solved a big problem where others could not. As noted in the New York Times, Donald Trump loves to claim he has outdone his predecessors. It's an openly one-sided deal which dismantles 60 years of bipartisan American insistence that there be a negotiated peace between all parties. Senator Chris Murphy called the plan put together largely by the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, quote, a total abandonment of decades of U.S. policy, end of quote. Netanyahu at the White House with Mr. Trump to announce the plan said, it's a great plan for peace. It's a great plan for Israel. And the Palestinians? Well, as with so many other divisions of disputed land in the last hundred years, the militarily stronger side imposes it without any uh, even imagined participation on the part of the people most directly affected. The uninvolved president of the Palestinian Authority said the alleged deal is unworthy of serious consideration, making real peace more distant than ever. Of course, must be mere coincidence that the announcement came as both Trump and Netanyahu's hold on power is exceptionally tenuous, of course. So what is this new U.S. plan revealed with much fanfare for long-desired peace between Israel and Palestine? Well, with us to shed light into the Trump-Netanyahu alleged peace plan is Sheena N. Arakal, who holds a doctorate in political science from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Now based in Houston, Texas, she specializes in the field of ethnic conflict. Her new piece written for Mondeweiss and other publications is titled The Deal of the Century is Apartheid. Sheena, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, you say the deal of the century resurrects and restores grand apartheid, a racist political system that should have been left in the dustbins of history. Before we get to why you call it that, let's talk about, just review some of the geography and the power over it. When not living in Israel proper, as many Palestinians do, the region defined prior to the 1967 war, Palestinians live in two non-contiguous places, the West Bank and Gaza. What has been the recent status of those territories in terms of who has legitimacy over them? 
Well, both the West Bank and Gaza have been under Israeli occupation since 1967. Some claim that Israel doesn't control Gaza because Israel dismantled settlements in 2005, but Israel actually kept control over Gaza's airspace, its territorial waters, and all but one of its border crossings, and over an ever-expanding buffer zone inside Gaza. That's why many groups, including the United Nations, international groups like Amnesty International, and most governments consider Gaza to still be under Israeli occupation. It has been for a long time. And I don't know if you ever saw the, the uh, movie, oh, 15 or so years ago, when it's called Amrika, and it's about a Palestinian uh, family coming to uh, America, trying to become citizens here. And uh, the uh, customs official asks, occupation? She says, 40 years. Uh, (laughs) It's a good movie. Uh, The new plan calls for a four-year freeze, a new settlement activity in the West Bank. I I may not understand correctly, but haven't Jewish settlements in the West Bank been actually illegal for quite some time? So how is this new, this four-year freeze? Well, first, it's important to note that the settlement freeze, it actually only applies to areas that have been set aside for the Palestinian state. Israel will still be allowed to build in all the areas of the West Bank that President Trump has set aside for Israel. Now, under international law, as you've just pointed out, every single Israeli settlement in the West Bank is illegal. And this is confirmed by the UN General Assembly, the UN Security Council, and the International Court of Justice, which have all said that Israeli settlements in the West Bank violate the Fourth Geneva Convention. Yeah, well, international law. What's that? Who cares? That's amazing. (laughs) It just seems irrelevant to anything that's going on. But Israel is, uh, being Jewish, I'll tell you, there's always a lot of disagreements among my people, I'll tell you. (laughs) Uh, If you get four Jews together, you get five different uh, arguments. But some of the farthest of the far right in Israel have called for not mere occupation, but outright annexation of some Palestinian lands. What is in this plan relative to to that idea of annexation of Palestinian lands? Mm -hmm. Right. So the far right in Israel has been pushing for annexation for a very long time now. And as Israel starts to go into an unprecedented third election this March, um, Prime Minister Ganyahu is hoping to lock in, to finally lock in the support of the right by giving them what they want not just annexation of the Jordan Valley, but annexation of all the settlements also, even settlements deep inside Palestinian Palestinian territory, which maybe under previous plans would have most likely been evacuated. Those um, settlements will also remain under Israeli control and protection and and will be linked to the rest of Israel through access roads. So this is basically a dream come true for the far right. President Netanyahu's gift to them in hope they will support him in March. So annexation and and the Jordan River, that is, the West Bank is the West Bank of the Jordan River. If you look at the map of Israel, there's sort of a big C shape on the uh, eastern side. And I guess that is the the West Bank that we're talking about, the West Bank of the Jordan River. What's on the Mm -hmm. other side of that river? I can't remember right now. Is that, uh, on the other side of the Jordan River is the country of Jordan. That's what I thought. I wasn't sure. Uh, and we'll talk about what various different uh, Arab countries are, are saying about this alleged deal. Right. Now, what, what would it look like in the West Bank after the proposed four-year freeze? Would power immediately shift to the Palestinians? So 
The one thing that the far right does not want is a Palestinian state. Um, the Likud, which is Prime Minister Netanyahu's own party, has repeatedly stated that there will never be a Palestinian state anywhere between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. So what this plan does wow. is it avoids angering the far right by basically maintaining the political status quo for Palestinians for the next four years during what's called a, quote, negotiation period. Everything is going to stay exactly the same. And it's not clear what will happen to these lands after that four-year freeze ends, but there's nothing in the plan which suggests that authority will automatically shift to the Palestinians. What will most likely happen is a continuation of the status quo, basically an occupation that never ends. Mm. And the the people who are, who are there now in the West Bank, uh, they, they don't have a lot of say over over what gets done. And and this freeze, I mean, I I don't understand. You know, there there are uh, settlements all over the place now, and it doesn't seem like uh, the uh, government of Israel has paid any attention to uh, any kind of uh, international agreement that it is a violation, that it is an occupation. Uh, just just no. And I, I wanted to no. ask, there's, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say that um, the government actually encourages settlement growth by providing no. financial incentives to people who settle in the West Bank. And so it's not that um, the Israeli government, well, they've actually encouraged this growth. Oh, wow, I, I actually didn't know that. I thought that... Uh, these are just people doing it on their own and that the government sort of winks and nods, but they actually encourage it. Hey, fascinating. Um, and there's a letter to the editor in uh, today's New York Times relative to this uh, Mideast plan. Uh, and this uh, letter writer asks, as for there being nothing in it for the Palestinians, I would think that offering them a state, having part of Jerusalem as their capital, linking their cities in Judea and Samaria with Gaza and supplying $50 billion for economic development is not exactly nothing. What's your response to that? I mean, could... So it's basically, so in my, in my article, I argue that the plan as it is constitutes apartheid. And so what he is basically saying is that um, apartheid is better than eternal occupation. And that isn't much of a choice. If you have to choose between occupation and apartheid, my answer would be, let's break out of this dichotomy and offer a third option, which is justice, which is equal rights, because that seems to be the only option that will actually provide stability. Equal rights. Wow. What a radical idea. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Can't have that. Uh, and we will talk about that uh, relatively new uh, nation state law as we as we go on here. Now, in terms of the reaction of uh, the Arab countries around uh, the state of Israel, Jordan's foreign minister affirmed his country's support for an independent Palestine, Palestinian state based on 1967 borders with East Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine and warned against unilateral uh, Israeli measures such as annexation of Palestinian lands. What have the other Middle East countries such as Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt had to say about the deal. They they seem to be kind of a of a different mind. What 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 do you think is behind their position on on the deal? Right. It's really interesting because um, the Arab countries have traditionally um, been in full support of the Palestinian Palestinian position, which in this case is total rejection of the Trump plan. But this week, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Egypt they instead said that the Palestinians, Palestinians should return to the negotiating table 
and work within the American framework. And the main reason for their support, other than the obvious, which is reliance on American military and financial aid, is Iran. The Arab states, especially Saudi Arabia, uh-huh. are fighting against Iran for regional dominance. And in this fight for regional dominance, the Trump administration is seen as a critical ally. So they don't want to make President Trump angry by completely rejecting his peace plan. Uh, good old Iran. It's it's interesting. I think a lot of people in uh, America don't realize that that Iran is not Arab. It's Persian. There's a big difference. <laughs> And that uh, uh, this setup between and uh, um, Secretary of State Pompeo and the entire uh, force there uh, is, likes to make Iran the real, real bad guy here, even though Saudi Arabia has frankly done, I think, I think, a lot worse and has been a lot more repressive. Uh, but they have oil, and they're. There are buddies here, and this competition, yeah, it's interesting how they've cast Yemen, the war in Yemen, as a struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Well, what about the Yemeni people? You know, they, they're, right. they're starving, they're, they're getting horrible diseases, and the U.S. is supporting one side over the other. Well, I guess that kind of explains uh, the Saudi, the UAE, and Egypt, uh, their Relatively new position on this. That's got to be disappointing to the uh, Palestinians. But and again, you know, the whole Palestinian leadership may be kind of in flux now as well. Well, let's just talk about that, actually. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas is the uh, president of the uh, Palestinian Authority. He's getting up there in years. How I wonder what his uh, position is in this whole situation. Obviously, he wasn't consulted at all. It's just being done to him. But I wonder how this affects his his hold on uh, political power. What are your thoughts on that, Sheena? Well, one thing he said is that he completely rejects the plan. Um, He had an interesting statement, which um, he said that he doesn't have many years left, Uh but in those years that he has remaining, he won't accept something like this. He won't betray his people. And so I think he is looking more towards his legacy, toward what people will say about him after he is gone. And so I think that's more his focus right Uh now. His place in history. Well, I hope U.S. Right. senators would think about their place in history right now, too, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> uh, what do we know about the popular will in those Arab countries like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt, and others uh, whose leaders are on board with the Trump deal? I mean, my impression in Saudi Arabia is that, that the Saudi uh, family, a.k.a. government, uh, is very afraid of its own people. What do we know there? What What do you think? I mean, there's the official position of these countries. But what What any any sense of what the, you know, majority of people in those countries are feeling right now, and what What might you expect, even if you know there's no evidence of that? Right. So that's the other half of the equation when it comes to the Arab reaction to the Trump plan. So the populations of these countries tend to be very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, and that's why out of these countries. Only the UAE sent an ambassador to the White House for the actual announcement of the plan. And none of the Arab countries have been especially enthusiastic in their support. So the leaders of the Arab countries are trying to walk a very tight line Mm. between not angering the Trump administration on the one hand and not angering their populations on the other. Mm. Hence the sort of lukewarm support. Ah, interesting. 
Yeah, I, I've heard that they're, these leaders are very afraid of their own people. It says uh, quite a bit about the situation there. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about we're talking about the uh, uh, deal of the century that uh, Trump and Netanyahu say will bring peace to the Middle East. Uh, our guest today is Sheehan Arakal. Did I pronounce your last name right? I should have asked before. Yes. Mm-hmm. Arakal. And uh, she specializes in the field of ethnic conflict. Uh, under the plan, the Palestinians will be granted limited autho- autonomy within a Palestinian homeland that consists of multiple non-contiguous enclaves scattered throughout the West Bank and Gaza. So now they would be granted limited autonomy. I wonder what that means and what Israel would still control. So, you know, what would the people who live there have the ability to actually control under this plan? What What do you know about that? So Israel itself will uh, maintain overall security and control that means that IDF troops can basically go inside these enclaves whenever they want, go inside Palestinian villages, Palestinian homes. Israel will also control all the borders of the state since the Palestinian enclaves are completely surrounded by Israeli territory. And also Israel will control the airspace, the aquifers, um, territorial waters, and the electromagnetic, electromagnetic spectrum, which means Israel controls access to natural resources and communications technology like radio and cell phones. And so the Palestinians um, will be granted autonomy and have limited control over areas like education. But even according to the Trump peace plan, though, even in education, um, Israel still has a hand in it. So if the Palestinians want a state, according to the Trump plan, their textbooks can't, quote, incite hatred towards neighbors. And that's a really vague requirement, with presumably Israel being the one who decides what does and doesn't constitute incitement. So Palestinian autonomy is going to be very limited under this plan. I can't help but be reminded of uh, British Empire history when they had limited autonomy for their uh, underlings in in Burma, in India, places like that, when they would uh, control the textbooks, as you say, what was taught. You know, eventually, after a while, people don't like that. You know, they just they're not going to take it forever. Uh, I I don't know how they can uh, the Israelis can uh, just keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. Maybe I wonder sometimes if they look to the American white settlers example of of just uh, pushing forward throughout this entire continent uh, and just uh, having their way lawless way and just uh, you know doing away with as many of the indigenous people. Uh, uh, the First Nation people as possible, and that it would just settle down, that they would just win over time. I, I, I wonder if that's possible. But what you were talking about there about control, you know, who has actual control? And in the you know British Empire, uh, they were openly racist. I mean, just you know, no question about it. They, uh, uh, that great hero Winston Churchill referred to those little brown people and thought uh, that use of chemical gas was quite okay just to to kill them that's that's uh england the term apartheid has often been applied to israeli policies of course the leadership fiercely denies that allegation i mean it really is very much against jewish tradition very much against jewish tradition tell us please about the rights of palestinians living in israel itself what what is 
the reality of equal legal and political rights that we Americans take for granted. So um, there's an organization called Adala. It's the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel. And they have a database that lists over 65 Israeli laws that discriminate against Palestinians based on race. Laws that, for example, um, limit Palestinian access to housing and education. And, but I think the Trump plan actually provides a really stark illustration of how Palestinians, Palestinian citizens are viewed by the Israeli government. So there's a section in the Trump plan on land swaps, and the plan suggests that Palestinian, Palestinian citizens of Israel who live in villages along the Green Line in this area known as the Triangle, so these people who have been Israeli citizens their entire life, mm-hmm. they may be stripped of Israeli citizenship and made citizens of the new Palestinian state. And so that, I think, more than anything else, tells us that Palestinians living in Israel are not considered equal to its Jewish population. And the same type of sort of denaturalization, stripping people of their citizenship simply because of their race, it was a key feature of apartheid South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was uh, Desmond Tutu from South Africa who, when, when a lot of people were saying, no, this isn't apartheid, he said, yeah, I've seen apartheid. This is apartheid. Desmond Tutu, I believe right. that was. The title of your piece is The Deal of the Century is Apartheid. Not just apartheid, but what you call grand apartheid. What was South Africa's grand apartheid as compared with petty apartheid? And how can you compare it how does that uh, relate to the proposed peace plan? What, what is grand apartheid as compared to petty apartheid? So petty apartheid, usually that term is used to refer to what's the more visible aspects of apartheid, segregation in public facilities, um, segregation in swimming pools and restrooms. But grand apartheid is the term used to refer to all the laws that separated um, black and white residential areas, that separated them territorially and which politically separated black and white South Africans by making black South Africans citizens of Bantustan, while white South Africans remain citizens of South Africa. And so the Trump plan, it also does this. It physically and politically separates Jews and Palestinians. So they'll be physically separated because Palestinians will live in a series of enclaves that will be declared their homeland. And they'll be politically separated because occupied Palestinians will be made citizens of their homeland, and also it turns out that Palestinian citizens of Israel may also be stripped of Israeli citizenship and declared citizens of the Palestinian homeland also. <laughs> Sounds somewhat arbitrary, actually, but uh, hey, uh, it, it, they are citizens, and they have been there for, uh, well, since uh, probably their families before 1948, uh, before 1917, when there was the whole Balfour Declaration. But, and then, uh, tell us, please, you mentioned a little bit about the 1970 Bantu Homelands Citizenship Act. This is in South Africa. What injustice was that meant to address? And in what ways was it, as you say, a political sleight of hand? Right. So the Bantu Homelands Citizenship Act what it did is it made all black South Africans citizens of a Bantustan, even if they had never lived in a Bantustan. It denaturalized every black South African, stripped every one of them of their citizenship, and made them citizens of one of these Bantu homelands. And the reason I say it's political sleight of hand is because once all black South Africans were stripped of their citizenship, 
then the government of South Africa could claim that South Africa was a state with a majority white population instead of what it really was, which is a state with a majority black population. That's why I would say it's political sleight of hand. (laughs) It's almost amusing, except if you happen to be uh, a victim of all this. Now, in South Africa, a white, clearly a minority, ruled over the clear black majority for a very long time. And in the context of apartheid, tell us, please, about the population in Israel. Is there a clear majority on one side or the other, Jews and Palestinians? And if not, aren't the Zionist Israelis worried that Palestinians may soon outnumber them and that maybe that worry about there being more Palestinians than Zionist Israelis, that perhaps that factors into their policies? Your thoughts on that, Sheena? Mm-hmm. Right. So today um, today there are roughly 6.5 million Palestinians and 6.5 million um, Jewish people living west of the Jordan River. So that means that Israel today rules, which, and when I mean rule, I mean ultimate authority, either through citizenship or occupation, over a population that is roughly half Jewish and half Palestinian. And that, of course, is the entire reason for this peace plan. So what the far right wants is they want to keep the West Bank, but they also want Israel to be a Jewish-majority state. And so to kind of square the circle, they make Palestinians citizens of a Palestinian homeland but Israel retains control or ultimate sovereignty over that homeland. And so, like with South Africa, it's political sleight of hand. It's an attempt to claim that Israel is a Jewish-majority state and not a state that rules over a population which is actually half Jewish and half Palestinian. Wow, that sounds sort of like uh, the old Confederacy. <laughs> that You know, yeah. that this rules for the, the whites are on top. That's just the way it is. And some people actually think that's okay back in the old Confederacy as well as now. And following up on that, a new Israeli law passed in 2018 is called the Nation-State Law that sparked both celebration and fierce debate over the very nature of Israel itself. It's non-binding, but tell us about that, please. I remember hearing about that a bit. Tell us about that Nation-State Law and and how that factors into and may frame the whole discussion. Right. So the nation-state law, so what it did is it basically basically said three things. Um, Exercise national self-determination in Israel is unique to the Jewish people. It established Hebrew as Israel's official language, and in the process downgraded Arabic to special status. And the third thing it did, it established Jewish settlement as a national value and mandated that the state... Uh, work to encourage and promote its establishment and development. So when this law was passed, um, many both within and outside Israel, they criticized it and called it an apartheid law because it made Palestinian citizens of Israel second-class citizens. And so that's the reason why it was so controversial. I would think so. And language is very important, and identity. You know, people... Identity is important. Having a sense of belonging is important. You know, for years, the Western so-called civilization has tried to do away with with any sense of tribe, of belonging, that, that, you know, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, straight men need to dominate everything, and that's, that's the natural order of things. But to do away with the legitimacy of their language, 
I, I mean, imagine what that must feel like to people that you don't, you're not able to speak your own language. I mean, there's, you know, in Canada, there's different languages. In Ireland, there's, there's British as well as Gaelic. And, you know, it, it's a proud part of, of who people are. To try to strip people of their identities, that's almost, you know, worse than, than physical uh, torture because at least you come out of physical, well, theoretically, you come out of uh, physical oppression. Uh, but to do, to, to, to make it so that the language is no longer legitimate, it's been legitimate for a long, long time, has it not? I mean, yes, it's sort of a way to, um, to make people disappear without actually having them disappear. Hmm. So you can't get rid of the people, so you remove their identity. So they're still present, but they're not Palestinian. They're not um, a threat to the state as, as I guess, the right sees them. Wow. Very creative. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how creative uh, people on the right get. We don't have Jim Crow laws, for example, but we have other, much more sophisticated and sneaky ways of uh, voter suppression. It's still aimed at the same uh, group of people keeping blacks from voting, and it's uh, pretty effective as well. But, uh, you know, the goal is still the same, but uh, people get more creative as uh, we are well into the 21st century. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking with Sheena Ann Arakal uh, about uh, the deal of the century, Trump's uh, Trump and Netanyahu's deal of the century. You have an interesting quote in the article. Once the indigenous population proves itself ready for self-governance, they will one day uh, be granted something that resembles a state. End of quote. I, it reminds me of the British Empire language when they ruled over what they considered lesser people. Who determines readiness for self-government? I always found that rather shocking uh, that you know, they're not ready for self-government yet. Talk about racist. My goodness. Who, so who determines? Uh, is there a method for determining self-government when they're ready? So it's definitely um, definitely a shocking statement. and it, But it's consistent with a lot of other things that the Trump administration has said. In a recent interview, um, Jared Kushner just said that the Palestinian leadership should accept the Trump plan because, because quote, if they don't, then they're going to screw up another opportunity, like they've screwed up every other opportunity that they've ever had in their existence, end quote. And that is this extraordinarily racist language. And it isn't surprising that someone who could say something like that would also say that the Palestinians are not ready to govern themselves mm. and then produce a peace plan that demands Palestinians accept apartheid. And so the Trump plan, plan it lays out a set of conditions that Palestinians have to meet before they're ready for self-governance. But the criteria, once you read them, yeah. they're so vague. Um, implementing a governing system with an independent judiciary with appropriate legal consequences. Who determines appropriateness? The criteria is so vague that it's clear the Palestinians are never actually meant to reach those goals. They're meant, never meant to actually establish a state. Hmm. So just uh, keeping it uh, just beyond reach forever. That's uh, right. uh, interesting. What about the people who say that... Uh, you know, pro-Israeli people that, uh, you know, these uh, big walls separating uh, uh, Palestinians from uh, Jewish Israelis and the separate roads, there are actually separate roads, one for Jewish citizens, uh, another set of roads for Palestinian people. I know that's hard for people to believe, but it's actually true. 
the people defend that say, hey, we got to keep a separation. After all, they, they launch rockets at us. And sometimes they do launch rockets at, uh, at you know, places within Israel. What about that? Is Aren't they legitimate in trying to protect themselves and, you know, and fight off this uh, threat to uh, Israel's very existence? I mean, you know, in the past, uh, Palestinian leaders have said sometimes that they want to uh, push, you know, just do away with the Israeli state altogether. What, what, what do you say to uh, the people who argue that uh, such perhaps drastic and, yes, racist steps are necessary for the preservation of Israel because the Palestinians don't listen to anything else? What's your reaction to all that? So the problem with that is that um, the more oppressive Israeli be- Israel becomes toward the Palestinians, the more the Palestinians will want to fight back. And so you and I would never live in a state where um, we can only walk on certain pathways and then we're not allowed to walk on other pathways because of our race. We would fight back. And so that's what we see Palestinians doing. And it creates a cycle where the more Palestinians fight back, the more Israelis become afraid and the more they oppress. And the more they oppress, the more Palestinians fight back. And so it's this negative spiral downward. And the only way to break out of this pathway, the only way to break out of this spiral is to start creating a different pathway, something that a system that's based on justice and equality. Because then the Palestinians, um, then we'll get a system that's more stable, something that um, doesn't cause fear and a reaction to that fear. And so that's what I would say to that. Uh, interesting. And when you, you know, when you push people away, they're going to, as you say, when they have different paths based on the color of your skin, people aren't likely to accept that. They're not likely to give in. And I think about, uh, you know, Trump wanting to build a wall to keep the uh, certain immigrants, certain refugees out of America who happen to be of darker skin. You know, the re- the reality is that uh, they have tremendous injustice where they're coming from. I mean, to get up and leave your family, leave your community, it takes a lot to stimulate that. Well, guess what? If we had a different policy there and helped these people, didn't support, you know, terribly repressive uh, right-wing governments, well, golly gee, maybe they wouldn't be, <laughs> you know, so determined to come here if they could stay where they are. And, you know, these policies just seem to carry over worldwide. Other presidents, I don't know if you want to react to that at all. No, I definitely agree with that. Um, there's this idea that when when we look internationally, um, a lot of stuff that happens, we also need to look at our, the American role in it because the America, the United States is the most powerful country in the world. We have troops in a lot of areas. We have our policies affect a lot of countries deeply. And so part of it is we can look at our own policies and see mm. how those policy changes can help these people rather than always criminalizing and dehumanizing them. And you think about the various wars when the Vietnamese were under attack, they fought back. When the British were under attack by the Nazis, what a surprise. They fought back. They were not intimidated. They didn't give up. You know, we could learn from history. That seems to hardly ever happen. But speaking of history, other American presidents since the 1967 Six-Day War have tried to help create peace in the disputed lands. Even Ronald Reagan was more sympathetic to Palestinian rights than many Democrats, many of whom dare not stray from the official AIPAC line, AIPAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, which uh, 
They have a tremendous amount of power in Washington, uh, just unbelievable power. They're pro- they may be the most powerful lobby in Washington. And because of that, because of their strength, a lot of Democrats will not dare to uh, you know, deviate from the APEC line. But Ronald Reagan actually was uh, more sympathetic to Palestinian rights. Uh, I was actually talking to George McGovern once about that, and, and he, uh, he was agreeing that uh, Reagan has a better, had a better policy than a lot of Democrats. Now, Netanyahu was quite often open in his despising President Obama. I mean, they just made him, you know, a villain. Obama was not really particularly pro-Palestinian. Something is indeed different in 2020. I note that Sheldon Adelson was with Trump and Netanyahu at the announcement. What is the constituency that Trump seems to be playing to? And, And then let's how, how did we, we get here? And what was Obama's uh, uh, position that uh, Netanyahu hated so much? I mean, he was, yeah, I, don't, I don't remember Obama being particularly pro-Palestinian. No. So just as, um, so on, when the Trump plan was announced, just as Prime Minister Netanyahu was pandering to his uh, most important constituency, which is is really far right, right. Um, President Trump was actually pandering to his most critical constituency, which is evangelical Christians. And it's easy to see why evangelicals are so important to President Trump. Actually, about a quarter of all adults in the United States identify as evangel- evangelical Christians. Wow. So one quarter, according to the Pew Research Center, and about 80% of them believe that modern Israel fulfills a biblical prophecy that foreshadows the return of the Messiah, what's known as Christian Zionism. That's tens of millions of votes, a lot of lobbying power, and a lot of campaign donations. So it's easy to see why they're so important to President Trump. Now, the other side of that coin is evangelicals. Israel really isn't their most important issue. Many just accept what they've been told about Israel, and they don't fully understand what's being done to the Palestinians, and having access to more information, it actually changes their views. Like studies, for example, have shown that there's a growing generation, generational divide within the evangelical community, with younger evangelicals being less likely to support Israel. And also some churches have started to divest from Israel because of its treatment of the Palestinians. The United Church of Christ, for example, has 850,000 members, and it divested in 2015. And the United Methodist Church was 7 million members, recently divested from Israeli banks. And so outreach to these evangelical communities is critically important if we want to change our government's policies. Well, that's interesting that there's that uh, generational divide. Boy, the, the younger people sure have a lot of pressure on them now. <laughs> Fix what, right. what our generation messed up, well, my generation anyway. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the separation of Israel and Palestine, it just... Uh, it's interesting how people don't really understand that and get that, and that uh, you know more education is necessary. But uh, as Trump has said, he prefers uneducated people, uh, for sure. Uh, and I, I did want to quote. Thinking of politics here, you know, this is it's a political situation for sure. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask before I get into a quote from Bernie Sanders in reaction to this. Uh, we in the United States have always valued freedom of speech. And the First Amendment guaranteeing freedom of speech was not there to protect uh, safe speech. It's there to protect what some may consider offensive speech. 
So that brings us to the BDS question, boycott, divest, and sanctions. That is, uh, well, maybe you can describe what that is, and then let's talk about what has happened with regard to being able to talk about BDS. What, what, what do you know about BDS? So the BDS movement, it, was, um, it began with a Palestinian civil service, a civil, a civil movement to call on the international community to, um, to boycott, divest, divest, and sanction Israel until Israel ends the occupation, um, gives equal rights to Palestinians, and I think the third is to allow the return of refugees. So it's controversial because um, right. a lot of people, some people argue that BDS, it's, um, it singles out Israel, um, but right. other people will say that it singles out Israel because Israel is committing apartheid. And so that is, I guess, a brief summary of what BDS is. Sure. And, and what really bothers me greatly as a you know, former board member of the ACLU here in New Hampshire and someone who treasures freedom of speech, there are a lot of Democrats you know, who support a ban on talking about BDS, that you can't go on a college campus, you can't uh, advocate for boycott, divest, and sanction. You know, people have a right to decide for themselves and to hear the information for themselves. And in a marketplace of ideas, the theory is anyway that the good ones last and the bad ones don't. But to not allow people to speak about BDS in America, that that shows the power of APEC because they, they don't want people even being able to talk about it. I just find that terribly, uh, uh, you know, chilling to freedom of speech. And uh, so here we are, and, and the power of the Israeli lobby. I did want to uh, mention, before we got too far, the uh, reaction of uh, one of the candidates for president, Bernie Sanders, and who, of course, is Jewish. Uh, he said, the United States can bring unequaled leadership to resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but we must use that leadership to promote a just and durable agreement. Any acceptable peace deal must be consistent with international law and multiple U.N. resolutions. Oh, I bet Netanyahu hates that. It must end the Israeli occupation and enable Palestinian self-determination in an independent state of their own alongside a secure Israel. Trump's so-called peace deal, Bernie goes on to say, doesn't come close and will only perpetuate the conflict. It is unacceptable. I wonder how that's going over. Your reaction to uh, Bernie's position? I agree with it 100%. Um, I think Bernie Sanders was one of the first to come out strongly against the occupation. And I think his, um, his moral position on this is very commendable. And so I would agree strongly with that statement. Yeah, he's, he's, he's right there with that. And, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, of Jewish people who are Zionist really don't like that. But I think he's, personally, I think uh, his position is much more in line with traditional Jewish ethics and values. And that, uh, I mean, because we, in America, a lot of uh, Jewish Americans were alongside uh, people struggling for civil rights. We traditionally, you know, are very much against racial discrimination and inequality and injustice. And the Israeli government, uh, it's a little bit different from that. They seem to stray 
quite a bit from what I consider to be traditional Jewish ethics and identity. It's not that hard to say. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. That's the name of the show anyway. It's a group effort. Our guest is uh, Sheena Ann Arakal, who uh, holds a doctorate in political science from University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and she's in Houston, Texas. Oh, boy, Texas. I don't know. Good for you. She specializes in the field of ethnic conflict, and she's written a new piece for Mondo Weiss, which I recommend anybody read, uh, called The Deal of the Century is Apartheid. Now, as you say, South Africa's grand apartheid ultimately failed. Why did it fail? And are there relatively easy learning opportunities there? So apartheid, it ultimately failed because local leaders, especially the African National Congress and, of course, Nelson Mandela, they waged a powerful international battle against apartheid. And as more and more countries began to place sanctions on South Africa, the cost of apartheid eventually became too high. And then the white leadership dismantled its apartheid policies. And so there are a lot of lessons that can be learned from the fall of apartheid. For example, the power and influence of local leaders the importance of cross-national human rights networks, and also the importance of combining both pressure from below, so pressure from civil society groups, with pressure from above, pressure from other governments and from non-governmental organizations, in order to change the policies of our government. Yeah, it can be done, and it has been done. In fact, uh, it's usually the only way it is done, from, from below. And a lot of people said, oh, if you boycott South Africa, then you're only hurting the people you really want to help. And people have used that as well because some of the uh, you know, Israeli uh, businesses like SodaStream and others, they do employ uh, Palestinians. What's your reaction to uh, that? So that argument is um, there is, on one side, there is some validity to it, that when you boycott, um, it may lead, lead to job loss. But the overall idea is that the system itself is flawed. The system itself is broken. And the only way to fundamentally fix the system is through um, this maybe boycotts, maybe sanctions, maybe by um, conditioning uh, military aid. But it's to encourage Israel to change the overall system because small changes within the system aren't going to make much, a difference, difference, much, much of a difference. They're not going to improve the Palestinian daily life. But we need the entire system to change. And so Palestinians have equality, so they have justice. And I can't help but think that a lot of the Palestinians uh, are willing to uh, accept, you know, the results of uh, boycott, divest, and sanction because they do want to change the system and they do want uh, equality, uh, and you know, just equality when right. it comes. Um, you say this this plan, the Netanyahu Trump plan, gives Israelis the illusion of security. What do you mean? In what ways is it not real security? So the Trump plan mentions security several times, and security is obviously an important value. All people deserve to feel safe, and all people deserve to be safe. But the problem with this plan is that it doesn't provide security because apartheid isn't a stable political system. The millions of people living under oppression, they'll never stop fighting back until they have overthrown their oppressors. It's a political system that it both cages and endangers everyone. So actual safety, true safety... It can only be found in a political system based on justice. Unless peace is founded on justice, it just it can't be stable. Seems fairly clear to me. Uh, and, and you point to something that I, frankly, had not heard of, the Rome Statute of 1998. 
tell us please about that and and how it might be relevant the Rome statute of 1998 what is that right so the Rome statute it's officially um the Rome statute of the International Criminal Court it's a treaty that created the International Criminal Court and it gave the uh, International Criminal Court jurisdiction over international crimes like genocide crimes against humanity war crimes and crimes of aggression and these are what's known as international crimes now, the Palestinian Authority, they've actually already petitioned the ICC, the International Criminal Court, to investigate possible Israeli war crimes in the occupied territory, war crimes that include illegal settlements, home demolitions, land confiscation, and so on. And apartheid is defined as a crime against humanity, placing it um, also under ICC jurisdiction alongside war crimes. So that means that the International Criminal Court can also be petitioned to investigate and prosecute individuals who are guilty of apartheid. And so it's interesting to note that the Trump peace plan, it demands Palestinians withdraw their petition to the ICC and to not make any further petitions. It basically tries to prevent Palestinians from using the tools of international law to fight for their rights, to fight against apartheid. I didn't know that. This agreement or peace plan is calling for the Palestinians to drop their their suit against Trump. you know, war crimes and other uh, uh, things that are illegal under the International Criminal Court. Wow, right. that, that's that's impressive. That takes uh, some real chutzpah on their part. And uh, you've heard, we've all heard, well, maybe not all of us, but a lot of people have heard of the liberal Zionist group called J Street, which is certainly to the left of the rabid Israel-can-do-no-wrong American lobby called APAC that we mentioned before. In J Street's reaction to the Trump-Netanyahu proposal, uh, they say, quote, the plan greenlights Israeli annexation of the Jordan Valley and virtually all Israeli settlements. It offers the Palestinians only an unworkable quasi-state, which would remain largely under Israeli military control. They also say the Israeli far-right will likely try to enshrine this document as the new baseline for further negotiations, widening the gap between the Israelis and Palestinians, making it harder for future Israeli negotiators to make compromises necessary to achieve an agreement. Talk about that observation, please. So I think the um, I think J Street is a hundred percent right, and it's definitely true that the far right will use this plan as their new baseline. There is no doubt about that. But I think though that the time has already passed when Israel might have been able to make the hard compromises, hard compromises needed for a two-state solution. Right now, there are over 600,000 Israelis living in the West Bank, and the prime minister that tried to evacuate even a fraction of those settlements, what he would see is the exit of far-right groups and the collapse of his coalition. So what we see today, in fact, are two candidates for prime minister, Benny Gantz and Prime Minister Netanyahu, trying to outdo each other for support of the far-right. So who's going to annex more land? Who's tougher on the Palestinians? and political parties who are following along and shifting even more to the right. So unless there's some external intervention, so the U.S. conditioning military aid, for example, there's really nothing within Israeli politics that can or will stop this continuing rightward drift. Well, we've seen that here as well. So just for clarification, the Israeli uh, settlements, the Jewish settlements that have been really violent and really... Uh, have shocked many people with their, you know, just brutal takeover of uh, Palestinian places. Does this peace plan 
legitimize them and say that now they are part of Israel, even though you know it's been illegal, I believe, even under Israeli law to do these settlements. They're not supposed to be doing these settlements. So this would this actually legitimize those? That that's pretty amazing if that's what it does. Does it? So it tries to. Um so like so Prime Minister Netanyahu, he's been um trying to get the far right to support his uh coalition and he hasn't been able to do it so far. And so they've been holding off. They want annexation. They want the settlements to be annexed to Israel. And so this is his attempt to get them into his coalition. And so he is hoping um, that with the U.S. permission, the settlements can now be legitimized. Now, the problem is that it still violates international law. So even though United, the United States says this is okay, it's still illegal. And so that doesn't change. The illegality doesn't change. It's just that the U.S. says it's okay. Well, <laughs> well what the U.S. says is okay. That's just the rules. That Amazing, really. Uh, there are other people besides uh, Trump and Netanyahu and Gantz, but they have the power. They call the rules. I guess that's the way it's supposed to be. But most observers say that this alleged peace plan is really dead in the water. That's just for show, as you say, to, uh, to uh, bring in the far right in Israel and to uh, satisfy the uh, evangelist uh, right here as well. Could it be that Trump's cynical gambit was released when it was uh, convenient to distract from his and Netanyahu's political troubles while shoring up the radical right-wing base, even though the plan really won't get anywhere? And if it's merely political posturing, and it's not going to go anywhere. What do you think the actual effects might be in terms of life for Palestinians? Will it not make a difference because it is just for show and is not going to go anywhere? Your thoughts? Right. So the peace plan, it was definitely a, a distraction from Prime Minister Netanyahu's corruption charges and also from President Trump's impeachment hearing. It was also an attempt by Prime Minister Netanyahu to finally lock in the support of far-right parties in the upcoming March elections and also by President Trump to kind of lock in the evangelical vote before the upcoming November presidential elections. So the one thing the peace plan was not, though, it was not an actual attempt to establish right. a just and lasting peace between Israelis and Palestinians. That's the one thing it was not. But that doesn't mean that the plan is completely irrelevant. So after the plan was published, major news outlets and some foreign governments, they published statements saying the Palestinians should consider the plan and use it as a starting point. No. So in other words, what they were saying... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm just... Wow, they, they're suggesting that the Palestinians use it as a starting point. That's impressive, but go ahead. So what they're saying is basically the Palestinians should at least consider apartheid. That's what they're saying. The Palestinians should consider apartheid and should use apartheid as a starting point for future negotiations. And what that's an indication of is how racism against Palestinians has become so normalized and how if we don't stand up and speak out, if we don't say that what's happening here is wrong, then those in power will commit crimes with impunity mm-hmm. and defend themselves by undermining the human rights regime that was so, supposed to stop these crimes from happening. Mm. And that's something that endangers all of us. Oh, it really does. So if, if the plan is, is dead in the water... Uh, should Americans who don't like it just sort of, uh, you know, focus on other issues? Or, or what can, do you think, is it time to uh, to speak up and, and say, hey, this plan is no good? Or is it just, you know, should people just say, ah, it's all for show, it doesn't matter anyway? And what, what do you think people can do if they're so inclined? And is there any uh, organization to which you can point them? Well, 
So what I would say is um, what people should do is definitely speak up and say that this plan is not acceptable. This plan is wrong. Because the problem with staying silent is silence always means acceptance. If we say silence, then we accept this plan as the new status quo, the new baseline upon which future negotiations need to build. But if we say, no, this plan is not acceptable, we need this plan is, um, it's not just, it's not fair, we need something better, then we start again. Then we come up with something that's better, something that's more just and more fair. Hmm. And so that's what I would recommend. I would definitely recommend speaking out and not remaining silent. Silence is complicity. Thank you so much. Very interesting. uh, And uh, boy, it goes on and on and on. And uh, people, you know, they're just avoiding the inevitable, which is going to happen. I believe that there will be equality within Palestine and Israel. It's just a question of how many people are going to die and how much blood is going to be shed. Thank you so much for being with us, Sheena. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Palestinian folk song. I'm not the 